0: Welcome to All Things Policy. I'm Bharat Sharma, and I'm joined by Siddharth Shrikant, with whom I'll be discussing his book, The Case for Nature, The Other Planetary Crisis. Shrikant lives in London and works in climate and nature investing. He was a foreign correspondent for the Financial Times and has master's degrees from the Harvard Kennedy School and Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Welcome to All Things Policy, Shrikant.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: So what is the other planetary crisis that you refer to? You know, you talk about nature in conjunction with the, the climate crisis. And, and that's an interesting question to ask because we adopt a particular lens, let's say, you know, when we look at nature, for instance, we we look at the centuries of unsustainable economic production and, you know, malpractice that we've done to nature. And we talk about nature always in that kind of personified light, right, where we use notions like healing nature and, and so on, these kind of spiritual notions. And what is the case for nature? I mean, what kind of lens are you adopting when you look at nature?
1: I mean, we need to step way back. I think The other planetary crisis is the biodiversity crisis. And the reason I called it that was climate action has had a great few years. I mean, we're still way off track. But one of the big things we've done is we've put climate action on the agenda. It's no longer nice to have that someone else should work on. It's the stuff of businesses, um, exciting new careers, and government policy. So I think we have, if we look back at the last few years, we've put climate on the agenda, the very top of the agenda. We haven't done the same with nature. We're still stuck in this... 20th century paradigm, like, like the one you described. Nature is seen as this nice thing out there, outside of modern society. You know, when I would talk of my love for nature, I hear things like, oh my God, I love nature. I went on this beautiful hike or I went to this um, national park. And that's a good thing. I think that's the legacy of a hundred years of the environmental conservation movement that's uh, led people to look upon nature with benevolence. That's a really good thing. But I think what we haven't done is then take the next step and tie it into people's economic and social well-being and make nature a fundamental part of the modern economy. We haven't done that work. And so the case for nature is two things. It's balancing the head and the heart, and we can come back to that later on. But it really is about emphasizing the economic case for preserving and restoring nature, because that's really been overlooked. Um, As we forge ahead on climate action, there's a risk that we forget that there's this biodiversity crisis that's just as present and getting steadily worse. And frankly, we're not doing very much about it.
0: Sure. And this kind of very central idea that you employ in the book is that of natural capital, right? I mean, this is something you discuss much later in the book. You know, just like there is economic capital, just like there is a human capital, there's something called natural capital. And just, you know, discuss what you mean by that. And in, in what ways does it actually connect to nature or, you know, as you say, the keys for nature. And Tell us why exactly do we need that framework today? I mean, why exactly do that? Does that framework fit into the kind of crisis you're talking about the the natural, the nature crisis that you discuss? And what is the framework being applied to exactly in in the book that you yeah you've written?
1: Yeah, so I mean, natural capital is a framework that, that allows us to value the contributions of nature to human society. That's all it is, and it doesn't have to be scary or hard to understand. I think I took. I built on decades of academic work, but part of my motivation for writing the book was this amazing framework hadn't really achieved cut-through, so it remained in academic circles. And the way I describe it is, think of these things I call, I mean, everyone calls ecosystem services. They're the contributions nature makes to people. So it's things like carbon storage, pollination, nutrient cycling, um, clean water, and, and quantities of water as well. We rely on this for survival, and nature provides these services essentially for free. But what we haven't done is value those services. And to be clear, some of these services are economic, but they're also cultural services, right? Spiritual services, intrinsic services. What natural capital does is provide a framework to tie these things together and look at nature holistically, to essentially put nature on our collective balance sheet of things that are valuable. And so the reason I think is really important is when we have economic frameworks like um, financial capital, we base everything around it, right? We optimize for it. Um, the very notion of GDP and, and governments optimizing for GDP is because that has really taken root, not just in academic circles, but in policy circles in the business world. And what it doesn't do very well, the current framework, is it doesn't recognize these other forms of value. And th- those forms of value can be translated back to economic value, right? So you can say pollination services are worth several billion dollars for you know, X, Y, and Z country. That's a decent way of translating these sources of value. We can also recognize that there's some source of value that remain outside the economic framework. So, for example, the spiritual connection to nature, that that's fundamentally important. It's okay to say this sits outside of the value framework that we're setting up, recognize it. We don't have to attempt to quantify those parts, right? We can just point to it and say that exists. But I think part of my motivation for, you know, basing this book on natural capital is that once you look at it, you realize... Uh, just how short-term some of our thinking is right now. The way in which, the other way to think about it is there are stocks of natural capital, so the assets, and then there are flows. And the flows are things like these services I described. Now, the same stocks and flows thinking applies to the economy, right? We have assets, and then we have kind of flows of financial um, capital. But once we do this, I think we can start making better decisions about how we protect it with nature.
0: Sure. And just this, I mean, this objection that one might have, I mean, a very intuitive objection to... Such a framework that, you know, you describe using the term natural capital is that, you know, the climate crisis and and the natural crisis has reached where it has because of, you know, employing this exact kind of economic system that, you, that you're applying to to this framework. So there's a role that money has played in the crisis that we have. There's a role that our economic systems have played, our social systems have played. And it just seems that these ideas, these economic ideas seem to kind of go against a moral case for nature, right? You might say that the Amazon forest matters just as how they are. You know, the mangroves that, are, you know, store carbon, are used to store carbon, are valuable to the ecosystem despite the service that they pay. So we might say that this kind of moral case for nature and this kind of economic or, you know, service-oriented case for nature are very, are two different ideas and and seem to be antithetical to each other. But but in the book, you bring them together. And do you think there's something about our culture? Or do you think there's something about how we think in popular imagination that separates these two? Or do you think they are kind of, they've been with us from the start?
1: It's a, it's a great point. I mean, personally, I'm motivated by the intrinsic case for nature. I come like, from a family of conservationists. That's always been enough for me. But I think I, I landed on this because it's not enough for everyone, right? And even if it is enough, or we say it's enough, we're not consistently making decisions that value nature, you know, just on the intrinsic case alone. And so I think this is a pragmatic approach to saying, you know, we can use the intrinsic motivations for protecting nature as the base, as the foundation for how we live our lives, and I dedicate an entire chapter to indigenous notions of nature and the value that can that can provide us. But you can build upon that by saying, oh, and by the way, there are these complementary economic arguments as well, and then let people pick and choose. Now, there are dangers, but then if you really look at why we're destroying nature at the rate we are, because it's already possible to privatize nature, right? Every farmer, rancher, anyone deforesting the Amazon is acting on economic incentives, right? Those incentives are currently stacked in favor of destruction, and so they respond to those incentives and chop down the Amazon. And so I think we also have an obligation to provide a different set of incentives that um, works within the framework we have, while also cultivating this the kind of relationship with nature that that will ultimately sustain us. And I talk of this notion of balancing the head and the heart. And what that really means is, in this world, we're very... It, it can be tempting to see the world in black and white, right? And say, either we just rely on the economic case, privatize nature, commoditize it, that's the—that's a the whole of its value, or we rely on the intrinsic case and kind of appeal to um, our spiritual and moral instincts. I mean, we've tried one version of those for several years. It hasn't really worked. And it's also worth recognizing there are different audiences. Different people are motivated by different things. And I feel like some combination of these things sits within each of us. And so it certainly sits within society as a whole. And so we can add those together to make a pretty compelling case for protecting rather than destroying nature.
0: And, you know, I'm reminded of this debate from Nehru's time about dams and so on. You know, how Nehruji thought, you know, dams were temples of modern India and you know, we saw them as being in deep resistance with, you know, just the kind of scale of displacement that the building of the dams ensued or, you know, ecological damage such as the depletion of forest cover occurred. And I think that kind of image separates these two ideas. I mean, there's a very cultural and political image of the separation itself. And I think part of just adopt what you talk about in the book is, I think, dealing away with this kind of cultural and political image. And do you think that's, that's important or do you think that's something that will come with time? Or do you think we have to do something about it more vociferously?
1: I mean, that image, it's striking, right? It's its kind of modernity yeah. and the conquest of nature. And it's its not actually just India and temples of in India. I mean, countries across the world at that time saw the conquest of nature and the kind of limits of ecology as part of development, right? That's the development paradigm we've lived in for the last uh, God knows how long. I think we do need a different version of what the modern economy looks like. One that's regenerative, one that works with nature. Now, in the book, I cite lots of examples, you know, things like food production, right? The fact that we've seen economic progress as a conquest of nature has applied to our soils. I mean, we've destroyed the basis for life in these soils, slathered them with pesticides, fertilizers, whatever, just to produce the thing we want and kill everything else. And it's worked for a few decades, but we're running out of soil, effectively. And... I do, that, that same example applies to lots of other things. Now, hydropower is a great example. Uh, we it certainly worked in the early years of India's development. There are not really that many dams left to be built, and we are going to have to find a way of you know, working with the ecology we have, protecting natural corridors and protected areas, and producing enough energy. And economic development, you know, one well of four million people. So it's it's not easy. And it's not easy in a place like India. But I do think even the framing of what economic progress looks like can shift. And frankly, shift away from the kind of built grey infrastructure being the goal, the deity to worship. Um, I mean, the way that, um, that temples of modern India phrase um, gets you.
0: Stay tuned to All Things Policy. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. You know, just this framework that you employ, the natural capital approach, what kind of approaches haven't worked for us? I mean, what exactly is this an alternative to? And could you mention, you know, the reasons why these approaches haven't worked for us? You know, we've been practicing, you know, particular approaches for a, for a few centuries, actually. And yeah, what, what exactly about these other approaches seem, you know, ask us to shift away from those approaches?
1: I mean, one approach that hasn't worked is this not caring and not doing anything about it. So the unfortunately default still remains. Most of the world area is not zoned or protected in any way for nature. So frankly, people can do whatever they want. That's the default. Let's just remember that something like 80% of the world's surface, we can do whatever we want with effectively. Um, there are protected areas. Um, they cover less than 20% of the world's land surface, but they have done some good, right? Particularly in places where there's been unchecked development, you have these islands where... Essentially, they've been fenced off. Typically, the indigenous people who live on that land have been kicked off, often violently. But what you have had is some protection of natural ecosystems and specific endangered species. And uh, I mean, India's success story with tiger conservation is a good example of that. But if you step back and look at broader ecosystem, what, you once, what was once this patchwork, what was once a kind of um, tapestry of connected corridors, um, protecting areas, an entire ecosystem, is now effectively just a patchwork of little um, islands that are protected in a sea of human influence. And that's another approach that hasn't worked. I think it's it's worked in a very narrow sense. We have saved some parts of the world, but it can't scale. And so, you know, the reason I pitch this this approach to protecting and restoring nature is absolutely we need those protected areas. I'm not arguing to dismantle them. We need them. But we have to find some solution for the 80%. And that includes a huge amount of agricultural land that is currently an ecological desert. It includes lots of areas that are not formally protected and where traditional indigenous custodians of the land live um, and where, uh, given the right tools and resources, they can find ways to generate economic benefits for themselves while protecting and restoring nature. And I cite examples from Kenya to Fiji to even India. So I think there's there's real examples of people doing this. and. If it offers a hopeful next step to build on over 100 years of, you know, what I call conservation one point.
0: And just to be concrete about, you know, what how you think these two ideas come together. I mean, you talk about green infrastructure, you talk about technology and so on. And, and you talk about these ideas in the context of a, of a rapidly changing kind of biodiversity. And for instance, you talk about green infrastructure and how it can be a buffer against, you know, rising temperatures and sea levels and so on. And what what do you mean by green infrastructures? You say that, you know, these are kind of ways in which cities are working with rather than against nature. And you you talk about mangrove regeneration, you talk about, you know, adding green roofs to the building and so on. And why is it so difficult for us to revamp infrastructure? I mean, uh, you mentioned Singapore, for instance, but you think, let's say, if you were to do this in India, for example, do you think it's a different case for Indian cities? You know, what kind of problems at the policy or the political level or even at the intellectual level do, do Indian cities face, for instance? And, you know, what are the reasons for lack of kind of greater adoption regarding say green infrastructure?
1: I mean, we're sitting here in Bangalore, which was one of the earliest green cities in India. I mean, it was there was a series of lakes. And I think initially when Bangalore was planned, I'm not an expert in Bangalore's history. But my understanding is it, it came about with... In your incredible thought and care in the early early days, it wasn't a very big city, um, which is part of the tension, right? As you grow, how do you keep these principles? But historically, I mean, has been has worked with nature extremely well, and I think in recent years, as this city has developed and grown dramatically, you have seen you know, the paving over of natural um, features like lakes and ponds. Uh, you've seen um, much less green cover, and the, you know the effects are very clear, right? I mean. Part of what I say in the chapter on green infrastructure is we assume the default is lots more concrete, but nature can help us and nature belongs in our cities as much as it does in our forests and fields. And so think of every threat that cities face, right? So flooding, lots of cities on the coast, mangroves are an amazing natural defense and they have been a natural defense for hundreds of years, but they've recently been destroyed or neglected. And restoring them can actually build a natural seawall against um, storm surges, flooding, all of that in a way that gray infrastructure might, but at much higher cost. And so that's one example. But then you think about the fact that cities everywhere are getting warmer every single year. And everyone who's listening can, can will intuitively understand that the more greenery you have, the more livable a city is, right? But this is no longer a matter of preference. This is Cities are no longer livable. You know, it's extreme heat is a real threat. And this can keep citizens not just happy, but safe. It's just putting more greenery in cities. Now, part of my motivation for making sure there are examples from across the world, Singapore is a great case study. You know, tiny country, but almost 50% of that is a country and a city, right? But 50% of it is green space. And they've quantified some of the benefits to people in terms of access, um, green spaces for mental health, for recreation, It's also been amazing for flood protection and um, kind of natural defenses against rising temperatures. The same can be done across the world. I look at case studies from Medellin to Sierra Leone to um, right here in India, in Bombay, where you have um, these amazing examples of, of urban planners bringing nature in to already seeing the benefits. And so I think this applies to absolutely every city in the world. This isn't something just for places that can afford it. And in some ways, this is a lot cheaper than <laughs> trying to combat, you know, rising sea levels or temperatures with lots more concrete. I think this is just a better solution.
0: And another example, you discussed a lot of technology and how it can actually help us achieve that intrinsic case for nature that you make. You know, technologies like LIDAR, for example, light detection and ranging, which, you know, can help us in carbon measurement, It they can help us with, you know, imaging with space, it could provide a virtual reconstruction of, let's say, the Kana National Park, right? And I would just, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask the question I asked earlier as well, which is that, you know, why do you think technology and nature together make people squirm? I mean, there is this very live kind of image about, you know, as you said, toying with nature, right? You're kind of using, it's somehow unnatural to to do that to nature. And do you think we've done a bad job in terms of just looking at these ideas together in the past. And yeah, how do you, I mean, I think that might be, a more kind of important case to make than actually getting, you know, practical kind of ideas together as to how we can, you know, use technology to solve the crisis.
1: Yeah, I mean, the way I look at technology is not technology for its own sake, but technology in service of life, right? I think there are amazing developments that help us now understand natural ecosystems in a way that would have been completely unimaginable even 10 or 20 years ago. And that's something we can use. It's not necessarily something we need, because I think there are ways of making this hug without technology, technology makes it easier, right? That's, again, if you're making an economic case around the carbon value in an ecosystem, you could guess, right, using scientific kind of equations and kind of estimations, or you could actually measure the carbon in the ecosystem. And it provides a degree of trust when you create market-based solutions around these things that I think helps these solutions sustain themselves and um, generate public goodwill. So that's one way in which I think technology is really useful. There's another case actually called Project Vrani here in India, where all it was was listening to the sounds of nature. Now, as humans, you know, we can can use our eyes, but our eyes aren't very good. And so when we look at an ecosystem and ask whether it's coming back, whether it's recovering, it can sometimes be misleading just to look at the trees. And so what this project did, for example, is they found that the birds had come back, but the frequencies where the insects were were pretty much empty in one of the sites they were restoring. And that told them something about what they'd gotten wrong about the restoration. We don't really understand nature, right? Even with all these tools, but it can give us clues as to what we should be doing. And in that case it could guide better ecosystem restoration, because you could tell what had gone wrong and what you need to change. So these are just two examples of technology being useful as we try and restore nature. But technology is a means to an end. It's not the end in of itself.
0: And yeah, I think it's important to also clarify what kind of use it is, right? I think what you mentioned in the book is, you know, you can have a technology dashboard of an environment. So it, it makes us track nature better. It helps us track the climate better. And, you know, you you may not actually invoke the toying with nature idea. You're just using it to understand nature and the environment and the climate. Um, right. And I was just curious, I mean, perhaps our listeners are also, I mean, what's your personal relationship with nature? Were there kind of personal Kind of motivations behind writing a book on nature, you know, trying to find a practical, not just a moral or philosophical idea of the climate crisis or the natural crisis. Uh, And you mentioned in the book that you come from a family of conservationists. I mean, how did that influence your thinking about these issues? And you know, what you studied on or worked on, etc.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it was—I don't remember not caring about nature. (laughs) So that was always part of my upbringing and background, and so it was easy in some ways. I studied conservation biology which gave me the scientific framework to look at ecosystems and say, okay, this is how the pieces fit together, because they're incredibly complex. I also love studying evolution, because I think it gives you a sense of the of deep time, of six billion years of, of the Earth's history up to this point, and how the living things that we um, share this planet with are incredibly special. So, I mean, those two things are really important. I think in writing this book and in the years before, I've had the privilege of traveling to lots of places across the world. I'm a scuba diver, so I love diving. I've been diving for a little over 10 years, I think, maybe 12 years. And even in that time, I've seen some of the reefs I've visited in you know, places like Palau and Fiji and all over Southeast Asia um, get worse. And I haven't been around for that long, right? So it's it's you, you can see the space of change in the world's oceans, which is even faster than on land. And it's, it's pretty stark and, um, and striking. So there's certainly that, just kind of the experience of being in nature and watching the decline in our lifetimes. And there's also just this other piece of, you know, stepping back and um, having the opportunity when in nature to reflect on my relationship with nature. I think I've tried to educate myself on, um, and again, I come back to it in the book, a range of indigenous cultures and worldviews. And these are, it's funny because all over the world, there are indigenous peoples. They have very different conceptions of nature, but in some ways they're all similar, right? They all view nature in relational terms. So there isn't this separation between us, humans, and then nature is this notion that we are we are nature, right? That we can live as nature, and I've tried to embody that in, in the way I um, kind of live and work. And I think it can be a really powerful framing because it, this anthropocentric world that we've constructed for ourselves. We can easily trick ourselves into believing that we are the most important things on this planet. And frankly, we are in the words of Dorian Sagan, you know, one upright mammalian weed that's taken over the world. And we'll be lots of species will be around after we're gone. Um, there may not be many left after we're done with our work, but it's just important to remember that we are a blip. and But we also have incredible responsibility because we can direct our energies in a way that other species, we don't think we can. So, I mean, that's how I feel about the whole thing. It's, we sure. admiss- and,
0: you know, you pretty much, I think the second last chapter of your book is about the indigenous case for nature. Could you kind of explain what that kind of approach is and how does that fit into this framework that you employ? Yeah, I
1: mean, as I was, as I was saying, I think it, it, there is a sense of relationship
0: and connection.
1: There's one view. I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna speak for all indigenous peoples. This is incredibly hard. But I you mean, know one that stood out to me. So there's the Koyukon people in Alaska and they have this idea of nature as family. So and I think lots of people can relate. You know, and again, nature isn't this thing that's separate. Family gave birth to you, right? Um, just as nature did. You live alongside both family and nature. You live from family and nature. But it's not like that relationship is distant or one way, any of that, impersonal. It can be complicated and, you know, family can annoy you (laughs) just as nature can. And particularly if you're living in Alaska, nature can kill you, right? So there's less of this. I find, you know, with some particularly Western conservation um, frameworks, there is a sense of um, nature is perfect, idealistic. I personally don't resonate with that as much. I think it's far better to see nature as this dynamic system that we are a part of um, and and speak to it in relational terms, just as the Korykon people do. So it's just one example of thinking that there's people's across the world. And how does it relate to the to the natural capital piece, which is the second part of your question? I think it actually, I mean it's not a one-to-one, it's not exactly the same thing. But I think, you know, indigenous worldviews and natural capital thinking are, are more similar than they are different, particularly when you when you compare it to kind of colonial conservation. Right. So one, there's a piece around give and take, right? There is this idea that humans and nature can live in harmony, kind of maintain, just live live together. And there's also this piece around uh, nature for future use. So natural capital thinking is about you know replenishing the stock so you can have flows in the future. And lots of indigenous cultures do exactly the same thing, right? There's the sense that you don't take more than you should, that you allow nature to regenerate. And it's why across the world for thousands of years, people have coexisted in harmony with incredibly biodiverse systems. And that's partly about preserving the stock so you can get future flows of food and fiber and everything else. And it's particularly true if you're living off the land and completely off the land, although in in a sense, all of us live off the land. Um, But yeah, I I think there's there's interesting links between those two.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Srikant. And yeah, thanks for writing an interesting book. We hope to see more of such books in the future.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks for
0: having me. If you liked our show...